Welcome! We are here for Game of Thrones Season 4, Episode 2. You are watching slash listening to an Overthinking It TV recap. If you're watching us live streaming on YouTube, thanks for joining us here at 9 p.m. Eastern. Uh, it's, I think, 9 a.m. Hong Kong time and it's, uh, 6 p.m. Pacific. So we're glad to have uh, people from various parts tuning in to join us. If you're listening on our audio feed... Thanks for subscribing, and if you just happened upon this episode, why don't you subscribe? You know, it, it won't hurt you, won't kill you. But some things will. But I'm cha. That's right. The reckoning has come. The thing that those of us who know the story well have known is going to make people feel relatively good, and those of us who don't know the story very well have been surprised and shocked and gladdened by has arrived. Of course, there are spoilers, so abandon all hope, all ye who have not watched season two. Go watch it, come back. Oh, season four, episode two, go watch it, come back. Excellent. All right, so, but as we start, as we traditionally start the Overthinking It TV recaps, we like to pick what we call our Downton Abbey moment, which is the conversation that's kind of about nothing or something that's not particularly related to the main narrative arc of the story that gives us a way of understanding, a framework for understanding the episode, a doorway into interpretation of the episode. And we've got three wonderful panelists here with me today. So why don't I toss it around and have you guys toss me your Downton Abbey moments for the lion and the rose. Uh, first in the alphabet is Shana Malowski. Shana, how are you doing tonight? How's your lion? How's your rose? How's all that nonsense? <laughs> How's my rose? That, that doesn't sound uh, right. That Can didn't you go out the way I wanted to. I apologize. <laughs> I meant like your, your bestial nature and your civilized and social nature, right? Uh, they're, they're doing very well, Pete. Uh, how are you? Good, um, good. So my, yeah. my Downton Abbey this week, uh, mm-hmm. I think, is the scene where Tyrion gives um, Joffrey that giant book of all of the Axe Kings, and Joffrey did something very uncharacteristic and um, was actually pretty nice, uh, expressed some gratitude about it, and then, of course, five seconds later showed his true colors and hacked it uh, with Ned Stark's uh, sword, well, sort of Ned Stark sword, um, because last week we were talking a lot about how people deal with story in this world, um, how the um, the people in the higher classes are trying to create stories, um, like the Queen of Thorns last week was saying that Marjorie was going to have to wear the best clothing so people would make songs about how would get her powers from the story. Um, and also, Jamie was trying to get into this book of the, uh, the knights who did these great deeds, but he didn't, so his story is sort of unfinished. Um, and Joffrey, in this one scene with this book, is sort of saying that he doesn't need to be part of a story anymore. There's a story of all of the kings before him. He wants to say that he's not part of history. He's sort of above it, um, and he won't be affected in the way that old kings were. That old kings um, in this world are often killed in very violent fashions, uh, whether by dragons or uh, by king slayers. Um, and so I think that when he destroys the book, it was uh, sort of <laughs> telling the gods, like, ha ha, you can't get me. And then, like, five seconds later, the gods struck. So I would say that is the Downton Abbey moment for me. So, so where were the gods to hold Joffrey accountable for his hubris and, like, all the time leading up to that, right? Is the, is the question. It's like, you were a little late for the arrogance thing. It has but to yeah, be at totally the exact you. That moment of irony. Like, the height of irony is what has to happen. <laughs> it's, there, like, there it's like Roger gods. Rabbit says in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, right? He couldn't slip out of the handcuffs uh, at any point. He could only do it when it was funny. <laughs> right, right. That's that is Matt Rather, but you don't get to go now because Ryan Shealy gets to go. He's next oh, year. alphabet. Um, so my <laughs> moment actually, this actually segues well because my uh, moment actually had to do with uh, the gods, and I think the conversation for me that so first felt like a kind of you know covering scene, like a Downton Abbey scene. Before I could understand why it was, was the scene um, between Melisandre and Shireen, um, mm. and where um, uh, Melisandre is kind of giving basically Shireen the pitch for the Lord of Light, um, and, uh, and and Shireen says um, something to the effect of, "Well, so there aren't um, there aren't seven heavens and seven hells," um, and Melisandre says, "There's only one hell, the one that we're in right now," or something to that effect, um, and I think that that was interesting in a lot of ways because it covered kind of two axes of theme that I saw in this episode. I mean, one was kind of 
religion itself. And we actually see if there are kind of three religious systems in Game of Thrones, that is the old gods, the new gods, and the Lord of Light, we see each of them in different ways. We see Bran at the, at the heart tree and we see him, you know, in the far North. Uh, we see the iconography of the seven um, and of the sept uh, in uh, there's this amazing kind of image in the uh, wedding ceremony of the star of the seven pointed star. That's the backdrop. Um, and then we see the, the Lord of light uh, in the, um, you know, the burning and, and kind of cleansing ceremony on the beach. So there's this one kind of theme about, um, uh, religion, and then there's, I think, another axis, uh, axis um, that kind of connects to what Shana was saying about, you know, if hell is uh, something about hellishness is eternity. One of these places where eternity is happening uh, in Game of Thrones is in lineage and in, in family. And uh, there's a lot uh, in this episode also about kind of the legitimacy of um of 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 an heir and of about bastards and i mean there's i mean these are things that come up a lot in in game of thrones i mean it's there from kind of uh you know the main plot uh in season one about uh you know joffrey's uh origins and and i think i saw a lot of those kind of classic um uh, you know problems or concerns about you know who is a bastard and who isn't a bastard coming out um, throughout this season, whether it's with uh, Ramsay Snow, uh, whether it's with um, uh, Bolton's discovery that Bran and Rickon are still alive, uh, and or with um, Oberyn uh, introducing um, his paramour was Eloria Sand, right? And so there's all these discussions about like le legitimacy and how the kind of preservation of lineage is eternity, and so we can return to those. But I thought that kind of was an that scene was an axis kind of connecting those two thematic spokes. Cool. Now we'll go back to Matt Rather. Thank you, Matt, for abiding by the rules, because as we all know, legal positive authority is the thing that holds society together. <laughs> Actually, I mean, it's funny you should say that, given the point, uh, given the scene that I want to um, that I want to choose. But I just want to 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 point out that that um, uh, tonight, don't tonight we we dip twice and eat the bitter herb, and uh, and we leave out a cup of wine. Um, for the Wait, Queen what, of Thorns. Why is tonight different from all other nights? <laughs> it's not. Oh, <laughs> well, can I do Dianu later? Because this is mm -hmm. such an episode that goes with that word. <laughs> yeah, we'll do it. We'll do it. Okay. Uh, happy Passover, by happy the way, Passover. to to our friends who are in the was, tribe, as it were. I, I was just going to point out that you should leave out a cup of wine uh, for uh, us to drop in a jewel from the necklace that will that will po poison Elijah or something <laughs> something like that. I, I'm not quite sure uh, how it works. No, here's my uh, here's my scene. Here's my Downton Abbey moment from the episode. It's when Jamie is practicing uh, left-handed swordplay with with Braun, and uh, he picks the sword up off the ground, and Braun thwacks him. And he says, "You, you idiot! You, you hit me when I when I was down, or when I, you hit me when I was at a disadvantage." And Bron says, "That's the best time to hit a man." Yeah, when his guard is down. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. And that was definitely one of the moments I was tossing up back and forth between when I was when I was thinking about it because this is this is a scene. This episode is also about how do we how do you solve a problem like King Joffrey, right? Um, <laughs> and the answer is that he's going to have his guard down at some point, and somebody's going to get him. Uh, and so for me, I mean, there were a couple of scenes that kind oh, of. I guess them. my I guess my bit is done. I guess. Oh no 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 no, 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 go right ahead. No, go, oh. go, Pete. No, oh, no, 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 I mean, whatever you want. It's your show. You no, know. come on, man. <laughs> you're you're. This is the one time. This is the one time where where you're not the the iron fisted despot of our. I know. I, no, it's great. I'm I'm enjoying it. It's. This uh, is almost you know, as high quality passive aggression as the that climactic scene between Joffrey and Tyrion. It's like <laughs> almost up there. So. You have to give each other looks like Loras. And Oberyn, though, to make me happy. Oh, Pete, sorry, you, oh, dropped, you, your you dropped your <laughs> coffee cup. Let me get that. Uh, let me get that for you. It's on oh, the ground oh, underneath. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I thought that um, the episode is a lot of the episode. Yes, it's about lineage and permanence, and it's about uh, like the the education and wisdom and all this stuff. But a lot of it is about the climactic moment and kind of building up the suspense to the climactic moment. And the other, and like, yes, striking when your guard is down was the big one. But the other one for me was when Ramsey is hunting the girl in the woods 
right? And they're sending the dogs after her, and he yells after her, if you make it out of the woods, you win, right? Which to me was kind of a, and of course, it's ironic. She's not going to make it out of the woods, and even if she were, like, the woods go on forever. The woods go on farther than she can run on foot while being chased by dogs. And one of Joffrey's faults that has led to his fall is that he considers the war to be won. He considers himself to be out of the woods, when in fact, like the the plants are all around him, he is in you know he's in the thor the the rose bushes. When you uh, play the game of dogs, you you die. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then of course there's the shaving scene, which combines the two, right? Where Ramsay has his guard down, but then you see another mechanism of power being exercised. Right? Yeah, which but is- he's I mean he's topping from the bottom there, right? Like. That, and- <laughs> Stop <laughs> it from the bottom. Now we're here, right now. <laughs> yeah, that's on the Game of Thrones mixtape, right? <laughs> and that—I mean, that's and two that's... swords. <laughs> two swords. <laughs> that's the point. I mean, that's the point of that scene because what's really because there's the yeah, it's you know the game of that scene is actually ulterior to the stated game of that scene, right? You really think it's uh it's it's between Ramsey and Reek, formerly. Um, uh, uh, I yeah. can't even remember. Yeah. I can't even remember his name. Like which him, I don't. Which is I interesting. Young, young Greyjoy. Uh, but his. Uh, but it's the game is actually ulterior to that. It's a game between between him and his father, and is about uh, is about a sort of demonstration of power as a means to, as a means to legitimacy, right? right? As though the power legitimates you rather than the, the external sanction of the, the, um, you know, recognition from the, the social order. Yeah. Can you unpack a little bit more? Because I really thought that, that the, the, there's a lot that's unsaid in that scene, especially by Roose Bolton about how he so drastically changes his mind about Ramsey during the course of that scene. I mean, could, could, those, could you maybe unpack a little bit more what you saw and then everybody else weigh in on that a little bit too? Well, I mean, Roose Bolton has, has been able to sort of uh, go, go with the wind. Like, Roose Bolton knows the way the wind is blowing and has been, been very good at, at kind of uh, leveraging what he takes to be the sort of tensions at play around him, and he reads them accurately, right? Like, he, he gets Walder Frey and understands... Uh, why he would do? Uh, why he would totally red wedding? It, you know, right? And and he gets the Lannisters and understands what they want. And crucially, he gets the Starks and understands what they're about and why it makes them vulnerable. Uh, because the Starks stand with Jamie, right? Like you don't you don't hit a guy when his guard is down. You know, you you sort of face him like a man, and it's like, okay, everybody, are we ready? We're about to have our dick measuring contest. Is everyone ready for the dick measuring contest? <laughs> you have to beat him in the field. I love how they say it that way. Beat him in the field. Like you're going to take him into a field and just hit him with a stick. <laughs> um, right, and, the, uh, you know, and then the... the um, uh, Ramsey knows that the best way to to beat to beat someone in the dick measuring contest is to tie him to the to the thing and to cut his dick off. Right. Right. Not to be you know not to be crude, but um, but what what he's I mean what he's demonstrating what Ramsey is demonstrating is that he has that ability also to sort of to um both to manipulate the people around him and to leverage their qualities uh to his advantage to the point where he's not even at risk when you put someone whom he has tortured uh uh you put a knife in his hand and put it to his throat put it right to his throat that he's not he doesn't even sweat that shit chili peppers um you know uh, he's he's not even even bothered by that, and that that is he he's demonstrating uh, you know that that sort of prowess right uh, to his father, and that's that's what uh, impresses his father because his father is is a realist in the same way that that he is, though his father isn't a sadist in in the same way that that he is right. Like his father doesn't torture Walder Frey until he goes along with the plan for the red wedding. He he just sort of gets in. I wonder I, about. I, the, oh, sorry, Pete. Or no, go ahead, Shannon. <laughs> I I was wondering uh, what you thought about that scene. Um, 
uh, later on uh, with uh, Joffrey telling Tyrion to kneel um, in comparison uh, with the scene with Ramsay having Theon shaving him um, because in that scene uh, you would think that Joffrey is as good um, at torturing people in his own way as Ramsay is, and you would expect that um, people would do things for him and not be a threat. But um, obviously that wasn't the case. Tyrion wouldn't kneel, and then, of course, someone killed him. So I guess the question for me is, was Joffrey's problem that he didn't torture people enough, that he needed to be crueler like Ramsay? Look, no, General Zod does not inspire followers. <laughs> right? Like, it's like when Z General Zod's like, kneel before Zod. It's like, nobody is like, oh yeah, sure, of course, sorry. You know, like, only like the two people are like that. Everyone else is like, I don't Very much like Purim, which is another Jewish holiday. Oh, wait, what about Purim? Oh, Haman um, uh, told people, and uh, the king as well, I forget. I'm not a good Jew. Told, um... Uh, uh, the you know the Jews to kneel and and they wouldn't so it was a problem they were all going to be killed mm -hmm. so similar situation yeah. different religion mm -hmm. go I on think, <laughs> I think that one of the key differences in between um, uh, Ramsey's torture use of torture and um, Joffrey's use of torture is that Joffrey like although we see Joffrey using private torture occasionally, largely he sees torture. The value of torture is as public humiliation, and that that you you torture to control everyone else as 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 it's almost as, as a form of terror, basically. Um, and and you see this a number of times. I mean, with um, uh, Sir, who's the Sir who becomes Nantos? the fool? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was is one case, but you see this a number of times of, of Joffrey in court humiliating someone um, and chastising them, and 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 this uh, episode with uh, Tyrion falls into into that. Whereas Ramsay, you know, appears to understand that torture is is a private thing, and and it is about a mechanism of of psychological control of the person that you are torturing, um, and he's not. And, and there are, again, there's some sense of manipulating some outside audience. I mean, some of this is for the benefit of, um, of his father and for the benefit of, of Balan Greyjoy. But the ratio of kind of like basically inward facing torture versus outward facing tr torture is, is really markedly different between those two in my, in my reading. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting that, um, that, that Ramsey tortures in order to be in charge and Joffrey tortures because he is in charge. It's like it's like yeah. Joffrey's making withdrawals from his political capital bank when he tortures right. people. And yeah. like yeah. he's making deposits. Yeah, I actually I have a question for, as as someone um, who is the non-reader of the books, um, like because so when I want to go back to something else that we were saying of a difference between Ramsey and uh, and Bruce uh, is that you know we you sort of said that there's a you know a a pragmatism in both of them. Or Bruce Bolton has this kind of um of of you know context specific uh, uh ability to adopt to changing winds and uh Ramsey wants to kind of show, hey dad, I'm like you. Um but and I think that one of you said that he that you know Bruce is a little less, you know, totally brutal. But I I mean I'm wondering because I don't under so one thing I don't fully understand, and I'm wondering if this is unpacked in the book a little more of what of, of the role of the flayed man in the iconography of the Bolton uh, family, and actually of the practice of of flaying, um, because it does seem that there is you know in contrast to the Stark and and to you know the direwolf and and the way that the direwolf is kind of imbued in the family mythology of, of the Starks, you know that the um, the Boltons, it, you know, my, from my understanding, there is some amount of brutality um, built into the family identity, um, if I'm understanding Flaying correctly. And, you know, part of what I, I gather from the interaction between Roos and, um, 
Ramsey is is not the problem that Ramsey was brutal, but he was not brutal in the Bolton way, um, and that you know that you don't get to flay, um, you know Bolton's flay, and 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 they do it in this in this way. Um, but I, I'm wondering if I'm not fully understanding kind of the un, the the symbolism and kind of history of that, and if that's explained a little better in the books. I mean, there's one big device that's in the books that's not in the show, which is very a very obvious, very visual difference between Roos and Ramsey which is that Roos in the books periodically leeches himself, like daily, and sucks out all of this like excess blood that's in his body. And he's known as the leech lord, and he's very pale. And he talks with Ramsay uh, about how leeching is necessary for him to remove his hot blood and like cool his passions. So Roos is of the opinion that he would be more like Ramsay were he not very vigilant in provide you know creating a condition of constant anemia for himself um now that question that you've asked what what's the deal with the flayed man it's not answered in the books okay it's something that's sort of a question that's floating out there there's a lot of fan theories about it i okay. think um what we do know is what uh, the big saying is a flayed man has no secrets uh and so it has to do i think it might have some that has something to do if you want to sort of unpack that a little bit past what's in the books is that, you know, what is it that unraveled Ned Stark? Well, like, secrecy and politics, right? The kind of politics that happens in the South, which is full of backstabbing, right? Yeah. Uh, but the politics of the North isn't full of backstabbing. Uh, well, okay, why? Well, because the people who rule the North are giant wolves, right? They don't <laughs> appreciate politicking. Uh, they, they know the alpha wolf is the one who's in charge of the pack. Well, okay, well, how do the Boltons also navigate that kind of environment? Well, they prevent people from machina from conducting machinations against them by torturing them. But that's just speculation from my part. Yeah. Shane or Matt, do you want to weigh in on this question? Because it's an interesting question. It's kind of at the core of one of the main conflict axes of the of this part, the part of the story that we're going to be entering into. Um, so the the um I mean the thing about the the flayed man is that it's one of those things that in the books it's it's sort of clearer that there are rumors that they're still flaying people it could just be reputation right they could just be like burnishing their reputation and that kind of like direwolves which don't <laughs> run around everywhere they belong to history and myth within the I mean, within the story within the diegetic world of game game of thrones so the the fact that like ramsay wants to do this and is sort of claiming precedent uh for this it's it's kind of like saying I don't know. It's it's kind of like some other you know historical practice that's not actually you know that's not actually done and is sort of distasteful uh, when it's done. Yeah. I'm I'm trying to think of some American like, like if the president of France guillotines someone, right? right. Sure, yeah. sure, sure. Or like if like if the if the governor of Texas like took out a six shooter and like shot a a, 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 a like a criminal, you know, like a, a guy who had been condemned to death. He's just like this is Texas justice, like boom, you know, like. It's like it's part of the culture. It's part of the stories. But so the other, I mean, but the other thing is that the that in the books there's there's it's clear that there is a long history, like a centuries long history of animosity between uh, between the Boltons and the Starks, and that the Boltons were involved were a sort of power center in their own right, and were involved in rebellions against the Starks, though though none of them successful to become uh, you know kings in the north. The way that the the Starks were uh, were before the the um, unification of Westeros uh, were kings were kings in the north, right? Like, uh, but there there is this sort of there is this sort of bad blood, which is kind of why it's 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 so important to them that they take they take Winterfell. But we're like, man, we're going down a we're going down a knowledge <laughs> rat hole in uh, in the books. You know what I mean? Yeah, Shana, do you have a take on this whole thing? Well, I think it's interesting um, in this episode and throughout the show, I forget the books, unfortunately, um, just the irony involved in the uh, distinction between what the iconography of each house is versus what they actually do in the modern day. Um, if you were saying that the flayed man um, is, what would you say, open, like... Um, Obvious. Well, it has no secrets. It has has no, no secrets, exactly. But of course, the big symbol I think of Roose Bolton was last season um, during the Red Wedding of him wearing these beautiful clothes, and then underneath he's hiding the chainmail. So you know, no secrets. Okay, um, you know he's not like the people in the South who do the you know have uh, this sort of soap opera world where they're stabbing each other in the back when they're not looking. Of course, he's like that too. 
Um, and you can compare that to um, the Lannisters. Uh, this week it came up again that, uh, you know, they always pay their debts, right? Except now they're sort of getting into huge amounts of debt because of this war. And they also have this giant lion's head, which I'm sure isn't completely made of gold. You know, it's only gold on the outside. It's like Jamie's hand. It can't be gold, you know, straight through because he would just, you know, it would be falling on the floor all the time. You can't really pick it up. You know, it's just like you think that they, uh, I don't want to say it, they say that the Lannisters S blank 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 gold, right? Like um, <laughs> that they just, they have so much gold. But do they really? Like, it's always the image. So you have all of these families putting forth symbology, um, these images that, you know, we can see from our, you know, TV, our privileged television viewer perspective that they, you know, they're not always living up to those high standards they set for themselves. Mm. Can you talk, like, let's take this to the Tyrells. I think the Tyrells are the trickiest part of this episode to figure out, at least on my first watching of it, to figure out what their place in the episode is, what is, about the Tyrells are we being told, and where do they fall with regards to all the other houses that are being shown in sort of overt and subverted ways over the course of the episode. Well, they're, I mean, they exercise, uh, they, I mean, they they rule with a, with a rose and not with a, you know, I don't know, uh, castrating knife <laughs> <laughs> they give you they give you the flower so but what does that what does that mean though like what does that mean more specifically i think i mean i think you see it you see it sort of put into practice uh during the the wedding when joffrey is is like about to fly off on off on some tangent and marjorie kind of uh marjorie kind of calls him back either appealing to his vanity or making it seem very nonchalant or you know saying, oh look a pie <laughs> <laughs> yay uh right right that 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 that's her mo and uh and so so it it's all secrets right and it's all ulterior and and it has an, it has like a core of of steel uh, and you can see it in Olena, right, that, that, you know, she is not to be messed around with. And the way that she talks to Tywin and the way that it's clear, I mean, that I, I saw some GIFs online today that were like, uh, you know, the shot with the, the, the chalice, like, passing in front of the camera uh, with her eyes, like, looking hungrily at it. Uh, you know, which I've I've just reenacted on the video uh, of this thing, um, of this recap. Uh, <laughs> it's contagious. I really love it. <laughs> hey, it's a visual medium. So go on. You know, and and uh, and it's clear that this has been um, this has this was put into practice last season. This was put into motion rather last season when she asks Sansa what Joffrey is like and gets Sansa to confess that, in fact, he's a monster. He's literally the worst. And uh, uh, so, so you know, that this is how she's, you know, she's, in, in fact, like their, their kindness and their niceness, their sort of, uh, their um, very uh, politic exterior is um, backed up with, with, you know, it, tremendous lethality, uh, which is all, which is totally hidden. I mean, which is sort of totally occult um, to their uh, uh, manifest uh, purpose. You know what I mean? I really Wait. loved how Oleana told Mace to stay on the path when she was talking to Tywin, and how effortlessly she exercised total control over the the on paper most powerful person in the house, other than maybe Marjorie. Right is is the is the Potter familias Mace Terrell, who's the the fat guy that we got introduced to this episode, uh, who is effectively powerless, right? Like relative to Lady Oleana, who's the true the true reigns behind the Terrell, um, the Terrell uh, ambitions, as it were. But I love how she's like, I'm talking to Lord Tywin now, dear, right? And so and how much how effective that was at getting him to stand just as still as. Uh, um, Theon was standing when he was shaving Ramsay, and how he wasn't frustrated the way that Tyrion was standing when he was, you know, he's being like kneel before Zodded in front of uh, in front of Joffrey. Um, just I like soft soft power is interesting, you know, especially alongside all this hard power. Um, I could make a Loras joke, but it would be distasteful, so I won't. Um, Loras yeah. Loras would get up from the table in a huff and stomp off. <laughs> it, it is interesting, though. It is interesting for him's character to be like the warrior Tyrell. 
right? That's an interesting inner conflict of styles, right? Like on one hand, like I want to throw fancy parties, and that's not him being a feat for the refer the issues of his sexual self identification. That's just like his his family's thing. Is like they throw fancy parties, like that's their deal, right? And so you know, it's uh, it's interesting that he's the one who can also stab people, right? And we saw a little bit of that heat between him and Jamie in this episode as they as they sort of size each other up, neither of them really in a situation where they could do anything with their swords, right? Like, they're at this wedding, and they're totally not in a situation where they could actually fight, but they still have to posture in that way as if it's something that could potentially happen at this at this juncture right now. Um, I mean, what do you guys... Gosh, there's so much else to talk about. I mean, did, what about the, the Martells? Where do the Martells fit into this, all this? They're, they're relatively brief in this episode, uh, but I mean, they had some fun conversations. Is it uh, is book three where we go down to Dorne, or is it book four where we really start? It's four. Yeah, okay. it's book four and five, which focus more on Dorne. We see we see the Red Viper here, but there's a lot of other people we'll see eventually. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, presumably, like it, it seems like there's a, there's already a lot of balls in the air. It's funny. I was <laughs> I was <laughs> I was thinking. Uh, yeah, not all of them belong to Theon Greyjoy. The um, uh, I was thinking that like this must be difficult for a non-reader of the books who who has had uh, l- like the books have the luxury of sort of reminding you who everybody is every time you you come back to them and you can also cross-reference and there's also a, a great wiki on Westeros.org um, so you can sort of find out who everybody is it they're, they're all kind of muddy-looking people. Uh, you know, muddy, grizzled, bedraggled-looking, uh, looking folks, and it's it's tough in the establishing shots to really sort of feel uh, uh, to really know where you are unless you're already conversant in in who these people are. I don't know, Ryan. You you're the only one here who who hasn't read the books. I think, right? Like, do you have trouble just tracking where the f you are in the story at any given time? I mean, I think I, I was just thinking about this. I think. I mean, I was trained to, like, hard to follow, like, stories with many, many characters um, by The Wire, um, right? That, like, and, and I mean, and I say that it was actually similar um, that, uh, you know, in watching uh, The Wire, uh, there was, a, like, in a first go-through, um, it gets very hard to kind of um, keep all of the balls in there, especially as you get into, like, season three. I think deep in se- season three introduces, like, a ton of new characters, but keeps a lot of characters from earlier seasons um so it was a, a kind of a similar you know i don't know if that i've gotten better at tracking um specific characters but i've gotten better at ac- accepting that i when i need to know i will know right that that there like someone may appear and have a conversation and i may not fully understand it um but uh but that when it's really important to know who they are, um, you'll, you know, I will, I will know, right? So that at a certain point, th- so it, it's that there are these different levels of, you know, there's the people who are deep background and are not, you know, are, who are just either extras or they may become important uh, at some point, but they're just kind of out there, right? So even this Red Viper who I've heard about but I don't have any understanding of is there. And then there's people who you may, who may say something or may be in a scene but aren't um, really central. And then there's people who are kind of shift more clearly into into focus. Um, and I think that the you know, even though the number of people in the you know the the softest focus is is impossible to keep track of, and even the the number of those in the kind of medium level is is too numerous, the show does a good job of kind of you know of of highlighting who's important at a given point in time and and keeping that to a relatively manageable um, level. I'm curious. Is it does the visual presentation have anything to do with it for you? Like the, the Lannisters all look so distinct because they're blonde and and almost no one else, uh, no one else is right. Like and there are other people who have sort of clear visual cues about who they are. Melisandre is always dressed in red. Um, yeah, yeah, and I think that I mean I know that one. You know, actually, sometimes the tough ones are people. Um, who are on the night's watch right. um, and, and, or for a long time, I also had problems of with like, it's like the night's watch and the cell swords were, um, were difficult because they were often dre- all dressed in kind of nondescript dark colors. Um, and so that, and it, I mean, and that's actually interesting, right? That um, in some ways these are, 
you know, the even though I guess some of the cell swords um, have some amount of kind of branding, you know, the 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 Night's Watch and and cell swords are kind of these men without sigils, all right. And so that I do think that the having of whether it's the explicit sigil or the explicit. Um, you know the the explicit uh, uh, kind of other kind of um, softer visual clues does help to to you know help you to guess who might group together. Um, and then the ones I've had the most trouble with are the ones that are these um, you know the the men and women kind of without family. Well, let's get to the big matter at hand because if Ryan, you're the only one here who didn't know what was going to happen at the end of this episode. Well, I use the books. internet, and so. Um... <sighs> No, no, it's okay, guys. Don't be sad, guys. Dwarves. <laughs> so, um, like, <laughs> uh, like you guys know my policy on spoilers. Like, yeah. I mean, I knew something was happening because, like, I like, um, intentionally read the Onion AV Club's recaps for people who have read the books because, like, because, like, because they they brand it as expert and novice, and I refuse to accept that I'm a novice at anything. <laughs> mind like Buddha, Ryan. Yeah, I know. I should. No, and so that, but the thing is, is that it's not even that those recaps are super spoilerific. They're actually pretty vague, but they kind of intimated that something crazy was happening at this wedding. This was also a wedding of note, and not just because who wore what. Um, and so I was on. I, I was clued in that something was going to happen, and I kind of, you know, and and as the scene, the very like long final scene came together it became clear that somebody was going to die um you know it's, it's it was it was a cool kind of like process of kind of elimination of all of the kind of what are the crazy things that could happen and then they kind of get whittled down and uh until like okay either Tyrion or joffrey is going to die um and 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 then and then the um the latter happened and so but it still was um yeah it was uh it was it was uh, so I had a little more expectation, but uh, I was watching it with uh, uh, my partner, who in uh, uh, the OTI universe uh, is known as Cognac, and she does not read the same blogs that I do. So her reaction was, "What? What's happening? Oh my god! Is this that? What? Yeah! Holy shit! Holy sh! Uh, poop! Poop! Poop!" <laughs> uh. I mean, I think once you see some sort of indie band playing Reigns of Castamere, you have to expect that something's going to go down, right? <laughs> like, why would anyone play Reigns of Castamere at a wedding ever again? It just seems like <laughs> temptation, like it, tempting. It's considered oh, insufferably hipstery to play the, like, bellows organ. In the- <laughs> <laughs> like having, oh, like, an yeah. Indian mandolin or something. I thought that you know Fiona and I were talking. And she might she wants to walk down the aisle to Reigns of Castamere. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! But yeah, oh, so, hi. <laughs> so how do you feel? I want to hear from each of you how you felt when Joffrey croaked because this was a moment that was built up and built up, and then there were there have been multiple other climaxes that have been in the way, right? And how much momentum was really left at this point? Was there a lot? Were you excited? How are you feeling? Um, I mean, I guess we heard a little bit from Ryan, but Shane or Matt, you want to jump in? Uh, sure. Uh, I thought in the book and in the TV show, it it was interesting how my feelings in both cases were tempered in a way. Um, at first you're like, yay, you know, finally. But um, it was written in such a way and especially directed in such a way that you get like an unset or I got an unsettled feeling like, oh, this is the thing I've hoped for. Maybe this is going to be terrible for everyone. You know, th- there was definitely um, this feeling that Maybe Joffrey was the worst king ever, but it could have made everything a little more settled in the Seven Kingdoms, even though Stannis was there, sure, and winter is coming, as we know. But uh, this reminds us that everything is on shaky ground, um, and, you know, of course, Tyrion also is in very hot water now. So... It wasn't as big of, you know, a moment of elation as I would have hoped, but I think that was by design. Matt, what's your take? Um, I, you know, I was thinking about it, and I, I, uh, 
I was sort of looking at the technique of it, right? Because I because I knew it was going to happen. I was sort of expecting it, and so I didn't have a huge emotional payoff, except to say that uh, the actor who plays Jeffrey, whose name is Gleason, Jack Gleason, Jack. yeah. Uh, has been like, I'm sorry to see him go, you know, because he's been so good. Uh, I mean, you know, the character is a jerk, but like he's been just per perfect at it. Um, but I was kind of watching like, okay, how are they going to do this? How are they going to set up the mystery? How are they, you know, planting clues and, and uh, you know, a, a couple of red herrings and um, – uh, est establishing this and sort of establishing tension and building tension, uh, and sort of and sort of paying it off and like just how how high are the like the agitato violin strings going to get <laughs> you know before like the psycho theme um, uh, you know comes screeching comes screeching in. Yeah. That's 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 what I was thinking. So my. Uh, my that was my reaction to it. But Pete, uh, as the host, there's no one to ask you and and take care of you. So I'm going to ask, how did you respond to the death of? Uh, oh, do you want you want to be host of this show, Matt? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> of uh, His Grace Jeffrey of Houses Baratheon and Lannister, first of his name, King of the Andals and the First Men, Lord of the Seven Kingdoms and Protector of the Realm. How how did you mourn his loss? I'm, I'm going to bring out little podcaster dudes to, like, fight so that we can see who's in charge of the podcast. I it, I wasn't as happy as I expected to be, which is sad. I mean, part of it maybe is related to this thing, this one, this, this thing that keeps getting repeated uh, in Game of Thrones. Maybe it's only been repeated twice, but it's repeated in this episode, which is when they tell Shireen, oh, you know, they're going to a better place. She's like, well, they, they died screaming. Right, and and the time that we the other person who died screaming, of course, uh, was Miri Mazdur, who said, "I will not scream." And then they set her on fire. And she's like, "Ah, he's screaming," um, because it's you know this being burned to death or dying in this horrible, painful way is like a terrible, terrible thing, and uh, it's one of the central confounding aspects of this narrative, uh, so far at least that you know the, the the death of good people is bad, and the death of bad people is also bad. Um, to an extent, right? Like, it's because, you know, no man is an island, even if some people are really crappy promontories, right? Like, where they, they seek to not be separate, connected to the rest of us. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe the suspense really built up. I was kind of hoping there would be more overt hints, I guess. I mean, I don't know if people... Did people see the hints? Because I was looking for the hints, and I saw a little flash here or there. But uh, not so much the, the intrigue as I was expecting, right? Um, although maybe they'll talk about that more later, about like, the various things that were happening and the, the kind of uh, Kobayashi coffee cup that's going to shatter in the ground at some point as people realize what happened. But yeah, I mean, like, I think the, it's interesting because when, when Joffrey is like this and he's, like, extending his hand up, right, it strikes me as sort of a, a, like a Goethe gesture of, like, more light, more light, you know? Like, I'm reaching up into the land of the living, right? Like, I didn't see it so much as an accusation of Tyrion the way that Cersei reads it. It's more like help me, right? And, and so, and what could be so different to think about a gesture than you know, help me and kill him, right? As being two interpretations of what the person is doing. Um, yeah, it was it was rough. It was sad. It was it was painful. And I mean, I guess I'm I'm glad he's gone, but I'm also not glad he's gone because he's a great character. You know, it's um, funny. It's 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 in a way kind of a final act of cruelty that his public humiliation of Tyrion. Right is what gets Tyrion the blame uh, right. for killing Joffrey, even though we have no evidence up to this point uh, that Tyrion was involved. Um, that Tyrion was involved in this, and and the show, I mean, the show is pretty even-handed. If you know who did it, the show underlines that, mm -hmm. um, and, and you can see where it underlines it. But if you don't know who did it, uh, you know there are a bunch of plausible candidates, and and they do a good job of kind of outlining who they are and really economically establishing why they would want, you know, why they would want to to do it, mm -hmm. um, and and how it might be done. But whoever Joffrey had had humiliated with with pouring the wine and and stuff like that right like wh whoever uh would be accused now you know um and it's a, in a way it's a it's a great it's a great kind of last terrible act 
to get Tyrion in trouble for this. So is is the next the rest of the season is we're going to be the introduction of um, Lady Angela of Lansbury, and it's all <laughs> going to be a ye old murder she hath wrote, uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, something like that, mm-hmm. uh, or or um, you know uh, Matlock of Dorne. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why don't we have Constable Wiggum come up at the end and be like, I can't solve this mystery, Kenneth V. Or can you? Because it was very, you know, who shot Mr. Burns, right? You know, just uh, basically an entire episode of, like, here's everyone who would want to do this, and next episode we'll maybe find out who it was, maybe the baby. But actually, since I was knocked off before, um, knocked off of the video cast, I don't know if anyone asked this question, but Ryan, do you have any, like, ideas about who you think did the deed? Um, I mean, I think, well, so, okay, um, I have a few vague ideas that are, um, I mean, I think that in watching it, it felt like without even noticing the explicit pieces of cinematography, I think that there was, right, that there, that, that the, in addition to being hints, I actually think that the cinematography also kind of, framed like actually not only like framing in the technical sense of like you know putting something in the frame but actually made me notice made even certain characters more salient so even though in that climactic scene they were getting the reaction shots from everyone here they're remembering you know here are all of the balls in the air i feel like the way in which um in, in which uh was it olana um was in the frame suggests her and suggests um, the uh, uh, suggests the Tyrells the most strongly, um, and I mean then at, like later when it that kind of wore off, I could brainstorm um, other other people who might um, you know have uh, the motive, but um, you know. Uh, I, at the same time, you know, like including like, oh, this is the smoke monster. Is this now they have an, invi- an invisible smoke baby monster, um, and uh, and and uh, he he did that. Uh, but I mean, I think that uh, it, it seemed more of the um, the figures, uh, more of the fingers seemed to point towards the the Tyrells. But um, you know that I think then there are bigger questions about what um you know what that means uh, what what all of this like why why that would happen and what that means for the you know political order and for the um for the narrative uh and for for the story going forward um and uh i forget what i i, had, I that was the the end of the thought i had like a half of another thought but i lost it was anybody like me really frustrated when sir dantos came back out and because of the anxiety of influence, couldn't just say, come with me if you want to live, and actually <laughs> break it up and invert it. <laughs> right? he's like, hey, man, a man's got to have a code, all right? He <laughs> <So, laughs> said that, but he's like, if you don't want to die, you'll have to, with me, come to the boat. You know, like, it's like... Well, he is an alcoholic, out, right? <laughs> if you want to live, right? Like, it's, it's what the line is for. Uh, but yeah, would, would you rather he say to the chopper? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah, I like that a lot. I also, uh, I'm trying to think what was the. There was like a couple of other lines that just made me go, hmm. Uh, oh well, I don't even know. Uh, oh, I, I, I have notes about like the oh when Stannis is complaining about the food running out. Right, it's like we don't have any. We have, this meat is bad, and he's so like. Santa's also ate poisoned meat today, but he just has some colon problems now because his meat is going bad. Um, but yeah, anyway, we we that's that's digression. That's like sort of scattering it out to the final observations, which we might as well do. I mean, are there other major topics related to this episode? We just, we haven't discussed Bran at all. Uh, we haven't discussed as a, as a as a as a bridge discussing Bran. I want to point out an observation about Joffrey, which was how when Joffrey died, his face got really pale. And there was blood streaming from his eyes and his nose, right? And the blood dried on his face. And for me, this recalled the faces of the weirwood trees, the weirwood trees, however you pronounce it, right? With the, the pale white bark and the red sap, right, that gets under their eyes and under their nose, which is described in more detail in the books than is reflected in the, in the, in the show. But uh, it just seemed like an interesting connection. 
visual connection. Uh, I visual always imagine the, the carvings of those trees having like big troll noses that come out, being somehow more more like bulbous and and kind of massy. Whereas they're pretty flat. They're they're just kind of like bas relief. Uh, you know, well, you're thinking about the trees from either Wizard of Oz or F.A.O. Schwartz, I would wager. <laughs> One or the other. Yeah, um, I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, in death, you sort of rejoin matter, right? You sort of rejoin nature uh, in an undifferentiated way rather than being this, like, you know, differentiated piece of matter that has agency and, you know, uh, individuality and stuff like that. You are, you know, you are once again... Uh, uh, just molecules, and so and 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 there is, I mean, in the old gods, the sort of uh, pantheistic nature religion of um, of the old gods, right? There, there is this sense that like we're all we're all connected. There is this sense of like the interconnectedness of all of all matter, of all beings, of all natural environments and phenomena, and 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 things like that. So it is an interesting. I mean, it's an interesting parallel. Um, that you bring, and it's it's kind of what Brand taps into when he puts his hand up onto the tree. That sort of sense of like all uh, all knowing, or sort of being connected to everything. And and he wakes up and says, "I know kung fu," and yeah. uh, you know can go to can can now fly in his. It was also kind of avatarish, right? That he he taps into the naturey mainframe, um, and and uh, actually. Wow. Yeah, there's actually a lot uh, more uh, more Avatar in the brand storyline than I would have expected. Also, the, like, you know, the... I mean, right, that is, like, what we open when we get to Bran. He is avataring um, in, in his, in his <laughs> dire wolf, right? Um, he's totally avataring. He's yeah. totally Sam Worthington running gleefully through the forest. Um, and, you know, I, this, is, this is neither here nor there, but Pete, you're right. Avatar is a terrible movie. Oh, um, it, <laughs> but it is all, it's sad that Bran has gone through puberty earlier than they might have hoped because he could then be avataring very low tech on, like, Hodor's back still. Like, right. Riding right, a backpack right. rather than being like dragged along on a sledge, um, but yeah. But I thought like uh, to combine with the sort of the other themes that we've been talking about, um, Bran's story here is interesting because it's it's the opposite of of uh, Joffrey's story in a bunch of ways, in the sense of sort of permanence as related to family, right? Which was I think was yeah. Shana brought that up originally, I think, or maybe Ryan brought that up originally at the beginning of the show. And 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 Bran is sort of if he's tapping into this pantheistic natural order that's undifferentiated uh, and where animals and people kind of pass back and forth between each other, then him being a Stark isn't really necessarily important anymore, right? And so that such issue of permanence is falling away, but there's another permanence, right? There's the idea that if he loses his family, he gains another permanence. But the one that really interested me goes back to what we were talking about with Jamie and Bronn, which is like, what does it mean for Bran to take his guard down, specifically with regards to the threat that he's going to lose his memory and lose his sense of self if he spends too much time in his wolf. Um, like, because like, he is so helpless. So on one hand, he's so helpless when he's in his can't-walk body. Um, you know, but on the other hand, he's so helpless against the hunger of the wolf and the wolf's strong passions and strong way of looking at the world when he's in the wolf body. So there's a power and a helplessness in each, like a power over the self, a power over kind of the physical world. Um, did that strike anybody at all? Anybody have any thoughts about where Bran lies and all these various continua? I mean, well, I mean, he's sort of, you know, I don't know. I'm in in touch with the ground. Uh, I'm on the hunt. You know, I'm after you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he smells like he sounds. He he's lost in a crowd. And, His and, name is over, and he dances with the sand. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Down in the Rio Rio Grande. <laughs> <laughs> a girl, girls on film is like what we didn't see a lot of in this episode, except for the one girl with the the legs over her head, and Podrick Payne is like, what, what? Podrick he's, Payne. I mean, in, in some sense, he's both lost and he's found, and he's hungry. <laughs> <laughs> Shane, do you have anything reasonable to say to all of us silly people? <laughs> Um, well, I was just uh, sort of tangentially related, thinking about how Bran did come up in a different subplot, uh, just to bring it back to the Boltons, actually, um, 
Ramsey brought him up again, and I was like, oh, right, other people know that Bran exists, because he's been off in his own little subplot forever, that uh, I just forgot that, like, he is connected at all to, you know, everything else going on in the Seven Kingdoms, you know, under, you know, south of the wall. Um, so, you know, in his world, yeah, he can be an animal, he can learn all these, you know, this magic, he can be uh, part of the world of the old gods, but ultimately, what's important to everyone else is that he is within this body that is known as Bran Stark, and therefore he is next in line. He, you know, is Ned's heir. Um, and even though uh, Theon, you know, brought in this other body, you know, this farm boy, and burnt it up, you know, ultimately that, you know, that didn't work out. Uh, so I think it's there's just something there that I'm not exactly sure how how to verbalize about how Bran is trying to put himself in, into a separate body and Theon tried to replace him with another body, but it's not really panning out. Everyone, you know, wants Bran in Bran's body because he is the important person. His blood is important, mm. I guess I would say. Interesting, interesting. I don't know if cool. that makes sense. Oh. So, never mind. Oh. Dainu. <laughs> Come on. Okay, so also I wanted to uh, have a really intense policy discussion here because uh, we're going to offer a formal recommendation to UNICEF at the end of this podcast as to whether they should give their annual collection to the poor or just like dump it into a river or like feed it to some dogs. How do you see that as like a right, Ryan, as someone who studies foreign policy and, and also the policies of nations with regards to the subaltern classes and institutions, what do you think about Cersei's strategy of feeding the food to the dogs? Well, so I, I was going – I'm glad you brought this up because I actually was going to talk about it when you were talking about um, you know hard power versus soft power because I think that this was is somewhere – in between, right? And there, there is again a middle, um, a, a middle kind of power, which is not just kind of um, you know discursive and, and not just kind of either shaping preferences or or um, or, or shaping uh, discourse, um, and it's not just threatening somebody with your sword, but is is manipulating social. Uh, social relationships and saying one thing to somebody and something to someone else, right? And it's the, it's, you know, and, you know, Varys touches on this as, uh, as well of, um, you know, what he has, you know, the, what he has to protect him or not. And he's, he just has his um, spiders. He just has his whispers and his little birds. Um, and you see uh, Cersei. So, you know, in some ways this kind of, um, you know, I think where the, that uh, the Cersei's kind of decision to um, like, in some ways, it's not that she is. Um, it's not that Cersei hates uh, that food is going to the poor. She hates that um, Marjorie is getting credit for giving food to the poor. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and 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 you know, she can't say. Oh, she she can't say anything outwardly, but she can make that not happen. Um, and 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 that I think that that actually um, fits with a lot of you know of of you know you used UNICEF uh, to start this, but you know in some in some writing about. Um, international organizations you know there's lots of concerns either in academic writing or in the people you know who in the 90s were protesting the world bank and the imf and the world trade organization saying that well there is no accountability because the action actually happens in back rooms um and you see you know that this is um uh, a place uh, you know that uh, seriously i think um and several of the other kind of you know the, the kind of people who are kind of in the core of King's Landing um, do, you know, the action happens um, behind closed doors. And I think, and again, another pair of interactions where this happens um, is, and again, it's not fully closed doors, um, like uh, uh, like uh, Ramsey's torture, and it's not fully in the open like um, like like Joffrey's torture, but it's there's there's some amount of public knowledge and secret dealings, right? And so that you know part of why there's an interesting play uh, in uh, Cersei telling uh, Meister Pycelle to um, feed the food to the dogs is that Marjorie already went public and said we're giving the food to the poor, and so then when it doesn't go to the poor, she looks crappy. Um, and then similarly, there's these interesting 
like the um, Cersei and um, oh oh again I'm, I'm bad with the names, but her er- interaction with um, tall tall blonde tall blonde uh, Brienne. sword. What's that? Brienne. Brienne, yes, thank you. Um, uh, with with Brienne, and I know Brienne. I love Brienne. We're we're, we're tight. Um, anyhow, uh, you know that she has a conversation with Brienne that, um, and and Jamie can see that she's having that conversation, but not what they're talking about, and that's important. Um, and similarly, uh, on the other kind of side of that triangle, Cersei can see. I don't know. I don't know if we actually see her scene. Um, the conversation between Loras and um, and Jamie, but that there's all, all these kind of there's both the direct conversation and the power of that, but then the power of there being some amount of observation. So I think that there, there's a lot of these um, like pieces of the, the like how gossip works and how that uh, is a way of projecting power. Yeah, it reminds me of how we cut. One of the one one of the big teasers in the trailer was revealed today, which was the shot of the dragon flying over King's Landing is from a flashback or from like a crazy thing that Bran saw in a montage and not necessarily <laughs> something that's going to happen this season, which was very clever of them to put it in the advertisement. Okay, so we're coming up on the hour here. Joffrey is dead. The world moves on. What final notes do we have for the Lion and the Rose before we kick this off to the commenters and to all of the, the mighty web to continue its, uh, its, its uh, just conversations behind closed doors, adjudicating the true balance of power and all internet fandom and such? Anybody? Going once, Matt? Two swords! Two swords! Well, there you have it. We're done with, with Season 4, Episode 2, recapping The Lion and the Rose. Have a great Passover. We have been overthinking it. Subscribe to our audio feed if you're listening to this on audio. Subscribe to our YouTube channel if you're watching this on YouTube, and you will get these as they happen. We've been doing them live, 9 p.m. Eastern on Mondays, 9 p.m. Hong Kong time, 6 p.m. Uh, California, Oregon time, all that stuff. We're there for you. We want you. We want to be that second screen for you while you're watching your favorite shows out there on TV. So, uh, without further ado, we must depart for our home and please join us there by visiting us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. Probably Where's the pie? Can I do something? Oh. Deserve.